Um, <laughs> you know when you're having a bit of a bad day or you're just kind of daydreaming to yourself, do you ever think about what it would be like to have a completely fresh start? So my standard daydream is um, maybe I'm sat in traffic or something or I'm having a bit of a tough day and there's a lot, of, lot going on. I think, imagine what it would be like if I just... So I grew up in Brazil, in the northeast of Brazil. Imagine what it would be like if I was just living in a fishing village by the beach and I could just drink coconut water and go fishing every now and again, lie in a hammock, sleep, and life would just be so chill and I'd have no problems. Are you like that? Do you ever, do you ever daydream about what it would be like to have a completely fresh start? Here's a, here's a question for you. Um, if, you could have a, if I told you that tomorrow you didn't have to go to work or school or wherever it is you go tomorrow, and you could have a completely fresh start, you could go anywhere you wanted, you could do anything you wanted, if you could have a completely fresh start, where would you go and what would you do? I asked my nephew Zion this question, and he said, I asked him yesterday at breakfast, he said, I'd carry on living here and do the same things that we do now. <laughs> Which is good contentment. Um, I hope he carries on feeling like that for the rest of his life. Um, but sometimes I think, if only I could just go somewhere else and do something else, I'd leave all my problems behind me and they wouldn't bother me anymore. I'd feel happy. I'm going to show you three quite grumpy-looking men now. Um, and they all said something quite similar. So, first of all, this is the Spanish philosopher George Santayana. And he said, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. And then someone else slightly more familiar, Winston Churchill, he kind of took a spin on that. And he said, those that fail to learn from history, those that fail to learn from history, are doomed to repeat it. That was, that was all right, wasn't it? And then along a similar line, um, don't know if you've heard of Mark Twain. Mark Twain said, history doesn't repeat itself, but it does rhyme. It's this idea that in history, there are things that happen again and again. And in the Bible, the book of Ecclesiastes says, what has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. It's this idea that all through history, people make the same mistakes, the same problems keep cropping up. I listened to a history podcast, and they were talking, it was a two-part series on the history of Afghanistan, and how over history, Afghanistan's been invaded several times by big world powers. So the British invaded Afghanistan, the Russians invaded, and then the US invaded recently. And they made the same mistakes, and the same results happened each time. It's like not learning from that process of history. And in our own lives, it seems like no matter how many fresh starts we have, we think, oh, if only I had a new, could start again at a new job, or start again living somewhere else, or start again with a new relationship. We seem to have the same problems that come again and again. Bit of a depressing start. Eh? What can we do about it? Will anything change? Um, I don't know how long I've been speaking on Genesis. I've been, every time I speak at the church, I, I've been working my way through the book of Genesis, the first book in the Bible, chapter by chapter, not skipping anything. Um, and Genesis is a fresh start. Right at the beginning, God creates mankind in his own image. It's a brand new, fresh start. Creates mankind. And then it says in Genesis chapter 1 that he blesses them. So there's a fresh start, and then there's a blessing God blessed them. And then he says, be fruitful and increase in number. So he gives them good work to do. Be fruitful and multiply. It's one of the only commands of God that we've obeyed really well. 
is multiplying. Fill the earth and subdue it. And then he gives them authority over the creation. He gives them authority over the animals and the fish of the sea. Gives them that authority as part of their good work. And then, still in chapter 1, he gives them provision. He says, here's food for you to eat. Adam and Eve are in the garden. He gives them food, gives them provision. And then in chapter 2, he gives them a command. You must not eat from this particular tree. So they get given a command. So God generously gives Adam and Eve all these good things. And what happened next? Well, if you carry on into chapter 3, we find out that Adam and Eve mess up. They disobey the command. They eat the fruit of that tree. And when they eat it, they realize that they're naked. Adam says to God, I heard you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. So there's nakedness and there's shame that comes with that messing up. And then Adam doesn't say, fair enough, God, it was my fault. I take the responsibility. Does this sound familiar? He says, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. It's not my fault. It's her fault, God. Does that sound familiar? Those of you that are married, I don't know. So there's blame. And then the story goes on, and because of their messing up, there's a curse that comes with that. The, cur- the ground becomes cursed, and they're put out of this perfect garden that God, God's given them. And things kind of become worse and worse. Adam and Eve have two sons, Cain and Abel. And um, Cain ends up killing Abel. The family gets divided, and Cain's driven away. So Adam and Eve are left without any sons for a time. And Cain kills Abel, and there's death. And so this spiral of things going wrong becomes worse and worse and worse until God says, I'm going to put an end to this. I regret making these people. And then there's a but. So things become worse, but there's this man called Noah. And in chapter 6 of Genesis, it says, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time. And he walked faithfully with God. You could say the Bible doesn't word it like this, but you could say that Noah is the best man in the world. It says, and Noah did all that the Lord commanded him. So basically God says to Noah, I want you, you're probably familiar with the Sunday school story. I'm going to wipe out life on earth. I want you to build a boat and I want you to get into it with your family and a whole load of animals and you're going to be saved. And Noah does it perfectly. And so there's the flood that comes down, life on earth's wiped out apart from the people in this one boat, the ark. Um, And the last time I spoke was chapter 8. And the chapter 8 is the story of the floods coming down again and everybody getting out off the boat. And Noah makes this sacrifice to God and God promises he's not going to flood the world again. So we have this fresh start, a fresh start with the best man in the world and his family. What could possibly go wrong? And so tonight we come to Genesis chapter 9. Now this is a bit of a weird chapter I don't know if you've ever read Genesis chapter 9. It's a bit of a weird chapter, but hopefully we can get something from it. Um, This is actually the fourth chapter that talks about Noah. Um, And so there are three other kind of talks that go before this about Noah's life. If you've missed those, don't worry. Tonight will stand fine on its own. But if you'd like to catch up on the story of Noah, it's available on YouTube. You can catch up on there. Uh, My friend Isaac's back from uni in Sheffield. And he's going to come read Genesis chapter 9 for us. And I'm going to interrupt him every now and again. Over to you, Isaac. I'll get your mic. So this is Genesis chapter 9. 
then God blessed Noah and his sons, saying to them, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. The fear and dread of you will fall on all the beasts of the earth, and on all the birds in the sky, on every creature that moves along the ground, and on all fish in the sea. They are given into your hands. Everything that lives and moves about will be food for you. Just as I gave you the green plants, I will now give you everything. So, we have this fresh start. Noah, the best man in the world, gets off the ark, and God says, here we go. And it starts off, God blessed Noah. So there's a fresh start, and then there's blessing from God on Noah and his family. And then God says this, be fruitful and increase in number. Does that sound familiar? He gives them good work to do. And then he gives them authority. It says, the fear and dread of you will fall on the beasts of the earth. He gives them authority over the animals. And then he says, here you go. Oh, sorry. He has provision for you. He gives them food. Everything that lives and moves about will be food for you. Just as I gave you the green plants, I now give you everything. Back to you, Isaac. But you must not eat meat that still has its lifeblood in it. And for your lifeblood, I will surely demand an accounting. I will demand an accounting from every animal. And for each human being too, I will demand an accounting for the life of another human being. Whoever sheds human blood by humans shall their blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made mankind. So God then gives a command. Gives a command about how to eat and he gives a command about uh, murder, basically. I wonder, do you recognize that list? Does it look familiar to you? It's actually the exact same list of things that God had given Adam and Eve. It's almost like a repeat of what God did with Adam and Eve. Same things God's given them. It's also interesting to notice, so Isaac studies law, um, how precious human life is to God, even animal life. It's like you can eat animals, but you need to do it a certain way, and human life is sacred. So the idea of sanctity of life in our legal system is a very ancient concept. So much of our legal system is based on things that come right back from the Old Testament. The idea of sanctity of life, how important and valuable and holy a human life is and how seriously God takes it. So think about the court system, the idea that judges are accountable to a higher power that places great value on human life. All of that's founded in this stuff. It was written thousands of years ago. Back to you, Isaac. As for you, be fruitful and increase in number. Multiply upon the earth and decrease upon it. So it's a repetition. God says it again. Whenever he repeats something, that's important. Be fruitful and increase in number. God wants his people to be fruitful. He wants good things to come from the people he's created. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, I now establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living creature that was with you, the birds, the livestock, and all the wild animals, all those that came out of the ark with you, every living creature on the earth. I establish my covenant. Uh, never again will all life be destroyed by the waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is a sign of the covenant I am making between me and you and every living creature with you, a covenant for all generations to come. I've set my rainbow in the clouds and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Whenever I bring clouds over the earth and the rainbow appears in the clouds, I remember my covenant between me and you all living creatures of every kind. Never again will the waters become a flood to destroy all life. Whenever the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and all living creatures of every kind on the earth. So God then said to Noah, 
This is a sign of the covenant I have established between me and all life on earth. So, as well as this list of things that God had given to Adam and Eve, the same things God gave to Adam and Eve, God now introduces a new concept. This is a new thing in the Bible, the idea of covenant, a covenant that comes with a sign. Now, in the ancient world, the idea of a God binding themselves in a covenant, almost like a contractual agreement with human beings, was unheard of. The idea that a God would hold himself accountable to human beings, his creation, was unheard of. But that's what God does here. He gives a covenant, and he says, I'm going to hold my side of the bargain. And that covenant comes with a sign. And I never knew this before. I I, I found this out while I was studying for for this talk. Um, So in the ancient world, the idea of a bow, it would have been familiar in the ancient world. So the early readers of Genesis would have been familiar that a warrior, as part of his equipment, would carry a bow. And all for a lot of the Old Testament, God's described as a mighty warrior with a bow who fires arrows. And it's very likely that the early readers of Genesis, when it talks about God hanging up his bow in the clouds, it's the idea that although humanity has angered God and done things that are wrong in his sight, and he has the right to fire down his arrows, in this new covenant, God's saying, I'm going to hang up my bow. Even though you deserve my arrows, I'm hanging up my bow in the clouds. Does that make sense? Back to you, Isaac. Sorry, no, it's not back to you. So, God gives them all these good things, the same things he gave Adam and Eve, and now they have this great covenant and a sign, and everything's going great. Noah's the best man in the world. He's got his family with him, and they all lived happily ever after. Thank you, everyone. Good night. You can, it's good to see you. Enjoy tea and coffee. <laughs> Did they? Over to you, Isaac. The sons of Noah who came out of the ark with him were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Uh, Just to note, Ham was the father of Canaan. These were the three sons of Noah, and from them came all the people who were scattered over the whole earth. Noah, a man of the soil, proceeded to plant a vineyard. When he drank some of its wine, he became drunk and lay uncovered inside of his tent. Ham, the brother of Canaan, saw saw his father naked and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it across their shoulders, and they walked in backward and covered their father's naked body. Their faces were turned the other way so they would not see their father naked. When Noah awoke from his wine and found out what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, the lowest of slaves will he be to his brothers. He also said, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Shem. May Canaan be the slave of Shem. May God extend Japheth's territory and may Japheth live in the tents of Shem, and may Canaan be the slave of Japheth. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. Noah lived a total of 950 years, and then he died. Brilliant. Thank you, Isaac. Hands up if you knew that story was in the Bible. Quite a few of you. It's not one you hero very often. It's not one of the popular Sunday school stories, Noah getting drunk and lying naked in his tent. I was thinking in the morning we do a kids talk and I was thinking about doing the kids talk on have you ever found your mom and dad in an embarrassing situation? But I (laughs) didn't do that. So, um, (laughs) 
let's just pray for a minute. Father God, thank you for your word, the Bible. Thank you that you speak through it today. Thank you for even the obscure stories and the way you can use them. Pray, Holy Spirit, would you come and be with us now and help us to hear your breath, your word, speaking to us through the ancient pages of Scripture. Pray you'd help us to see the Lord Jesus. Amen. So Noah, the best man in the world, plants a vineyard. And it sounds really quick, but that would have taken him a few years. There's nothing wrong with planting a vineyard. And he makes wine. That would have taken him several months from crushing the grapes to the wine fermenting. And there's nothing wrong with that. And we don't really know. The Bible doesn't really comment on what it thinks of Noah's behavior. Maybe, you know, most of the people Noah knew had died. Maybe he had survivor's guilt. Maybe he was just bored, but he then gets very drunk and lies naked in his tent. And the Bible doesn't say this, but you can kind of read between the lines that it's a bit of an embarrassing situation for a man like Noah to be in. And just as a quick side note, thinking of Noah's vineyard, nothing wrong with planting a vineyard, nothing wrong with making wine, nothing wrong with drinking wine. But then suddenly Noah finds himself in a really embarrassing situation. I wonder for you in your life, is there anything that's there in the background of your life, and there's nothing wrong with it from the outside, people looking in, nothing wrong with that, but is there anything in your life that could eventually lead to you being in a compromising situation that could make you suddenly look foolish or embarrass you or make a mess of your life? Is there anything there that looks fine on the outside but really has the potential to embarrass you? So, going back to the list of things God's given Noah, he gives them all these things, a fresh start, blessing, good work to do, authority over the creation, provision, gives him a command, and he gives him a covenant with a sign. And what does Noah do? He makes a bit of a mess. He gets drunk and lies naked in his tent. And then his son comes in, and he sees his dad's nakedness, and the implication is that his son's behavior in some way shames Noah. We don't know exactly why or what the son did, but the implication is that by looking on his dad's nakedness, that shamed his father. And then Noah, instead of saying, actually, you know what, I did make a bit of a fool of myself. My son didn't behave very well either, but you know, we both kind of share the guilt. No, he places the blame on his son. And then he comes out with a whole load of curses. He curses his son. Well, for some reason, he doesn't curse his son. He curses his grandson. We don't actually know why that is. Maybe he was still drunk. But I don't know. Um, he doesn't curse his son. He curses his son's son. Um, and then in that, at the end there, that weird kind of series of curses and blessings that Noah makes, he divides his sons against each other. He blesses two of his sons and curses one of them and says, may he be the slave of them. And so he divides the family with his curses and his blessings, his pronouncements. And then he gets older, he lives to an old age. If you want, by the way, that, that massive age Noah lives to, on one of the talks, I think it was a couple of talks ago, we talk about those big ages and why did people have recordings of such large ages. We kind of explore that then. But he gets to an old age and then he dies. Do you recognize that pattern? Does that look familiar? It's the exact same pattern of what happened with Adam and Eve. The exact same thing. Like Mark Twain said, history doesn't repeat itself, but it does rhyme. 
And we can see those patterns all through history. We can see them in our world. We can see them in our country, the same mistakes. We can see them in people around us, the same bad habits, the same problems, the same old things. But the most important thing for us this evening is, can we see those patterns in ourselves? What about me? If the Bible is a bit like a mirror and it shows us what we're really like, can we see where we mess up, where we don't do things the way God would have us do them? Where we're naked, where we think we're good people on the outside, but we know what's going on on the inside, really. Maybe you're here this evening and you, under the surface, are carrying a real feeling of shame. Shame for something you've done in the past, shame for who you've been, shame for something you've said. Maybe you're carrying a deep sense of shame this evening. Maybe you have a real problem with facing up to your own problems and you just like to blame everyone else. Or maybe sometimes in your life you're just plain nasty and you like to curse. Maybe you've caused division in your own family or in friendships. Maybe you've harmed relationships. And our lives get so full of mess and then we die. So what can we do? We're going to do something a little bit different. We don't normally do this in the middle of a talk. But um, what can we do? A good place to start is this. It says in 1 John 1 verse 8, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So what we're going to do now is just for a moment, for about a minute, we're going to have a time of silence and not looking at other people's lives, but looking at my own life. Where are these things present in my life, this list of things? Where do I see that in my life? Where do I go looking for a fresh start instead of facing the real problems? So we're going to have a short time of confession. We're just going to have a minute in silence and think, where do I see these things cropping up in my own life? Just take a minute. Lord Jesus, I come and stand here. Lord, I got my smart shirt on and I'm stood at the front of church, but you know all the mess that's ever been in my life. You know all the mess that's there now. And here I am, Lord. Thank you that you don't throw me out. Do you hear our confession, Lord? We're, we're broken people. We don't always do things your way. Do you hear our prayers? We come to you now, Jesus. Amen. So, I was uh, I work with a guy called Andy. Um, we work fitting shutters, and we were talking about this passage on Friday evening. Um, and he pointed something out to me that I'd never seen before, and it really moved me. I'd never seen this before. Um, and it's something from a children's, children's storybook Bible. It's called the Jesus Storybook Bible by a lady called Sally Lloyd-Jones. And I'm, if it's all right with you, I'm just going to read an extract from that, because I just found this idea so beautiful, and it never struck me before. It says this, And there in the clouds, just where the storm meets the sun was a beautiful bow made of light. It was a new beginning in God's world. It wasn't long before everything went wrong again, but God wasn't surprised. He knew this would happen. That's why before the beginning of time, he had another plan, a better plan. 
God's strong anger against hate and sadness and death would come down once more, but not on his people, his world. No, God's war bow was not pointing down at his people. It was pointing up into the heart of heaven. And I found that so beautiful. If the rainbow is a symbol of God's war bow, it's not pointed down towards us. The arrows aren't pointed down towards us. If you see a rainbow in the sky, this has totally changed the way I see rainbows. If you see a rainbow in the sky, a bow, when it's pulled tight, becomes a bow shape like that. And the arrow isn't pointed down towards the earth. It's pointed up towards the one who's going to be pierced. Me that deserves the arrow, it's not pointed down. Imagine if a rainbow was like that. It's not. It's pointed up into the heavens towards the one who's going to be pierced. I just found that idea so beautiful. It's not us who gets pierced. It's him. And so where Mark Twain says, history doesn't repeat itself, but it does rhyme. Those horrible rhymes of messing up, of nakedness, shame, blame, cursing, division, death. If your life, if you've come here tonight and you feel like you're stuck in a rut, the same old things, the same problems, the same mistakes, the same shames, repeating themselves again and again. If your history has rhymed every day up until now, Jesus teaches us how to sing a different kind of song. So here's a list of things that Noah did that Jesus puts a different spin on. He sings it in a new way. So think about wine. Noah makes a whole load of wine has it all to himself and gets completely hammered, gets drunk. Jesus makes a load of wine at a wedding feast and shares it out, and wine becomes a symbol of new life and celebration and cleansing in Jesus. Where Noah was naked in a tent and his son comes in and shames him, Jesus was not in a tent but publicly naked, publicly shamed. And in that shame, in that humiliation, He doesn't look at our shame, he covers over our shame. He doesn't look at our shame anymore, like the two brothers coming backwards and cover over Noah's naked body. Jesus covers over our shame, and he doesn't look at it anymore. So Jesus was shamed for us, he covers our shame. A question for ourselves, how can I, instead of uncovering other people's shame, look at what they've done, how can I cover over other people's shame? Where Noah blames his son for the whole situation and then weirdly curses his grandson, Jesus on the cross says, the people that have pinned him to the cross naked, Jesus says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. Forgive them. So how can I stop in my life cycles of blame and cursing? Where Noah started blessing some of his sons and cursing others and setting them against each other, a family divided. Jesus, if you look around you, and again this morning, people from every walk of life, Jesus brings them in, brings them into his family. Jesus doesn't divide families, he creates a new one and brings anyone in who wants to come in. It says in John, all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, were welcomed into a family. So for me, how can I welcome and include instead of dividing? And in Noah's life, where all of his problems and habits eventually led to his death, 
Jesus says, I've come that they may have life and have it in all its fullness. And how can I share this new life with people? And where Adam and Eve messed up, and where Noah messed up, and where I mess up every single day, because of Jesus, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. So going back to those three grumpy old men, George Santayana, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. Those that fail to learn from history are doomed to repeat it, says Winston Churchill. History doesn't repeat itself, but it does rhyme. If the voice in your head is, you're never going to change, you're always going to be like this, you're too old to change now, you'll always have that habit, you'll always carry on making that same mistake, that's just who you are, you're going to be in this rut until the day you die. History doesn't have to keep repeating itself. Jesus, when he came, it says Jesus came preaching repentance. And that sounds like a negative thing, but if you think about it, the idea of someone repenting or changing is actually a hopeful one. Jesus calls people to repent because he says, you can change. Your life can be different. So Jesus' message of repentance isn't one to bring you down. It's one that says, you don't have to carry on living like this. You can change. There can be a fresh start for you. And if you look around you tonight, there are people here who've had their lives changed by Jesus. Maybe you've had your life changed by Jesus, but you're in a rut now. You can have your life changed by Jesus again. And one day, the cycles of history, the repetition, the same stupidity again and again and again, one day that's going to come to an end and there will be a new heaven and a new earth. Every knee will bow. History's not going to go on like this forever. We have a message of hope. If you're here tonight and you think history is just on a downward curve, things aren't getting better after all. We have a message of hope. There will be a new heavens and a new earth. I'll finish with this. This is a verse from Lamentations. It's the prophet Jeremiah struggling in the midst of great suffering, not being able to see what's going to change. He said this. But this I call to mind... And therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. So I'm going to pray now, and then I'm going to leave these questions up on the screen, and we're going to have a time of silence to reflect. Um, And I'll hand over to Sheila. But let's pray together, and then we'll have a time of silence. Lord Jesus, I don't know why you love a man like me. And I don't know why you keep on patiently loving me when you know what I'm like. But I'm so grateful that you do. Thank you that your war bow isn't pointed down at me, but it's pointed up into the heart of heaven. Thank you that your faithful love goes on and on and on forever and that you've covered over my shame. That you give me a fresh start every morning. That your mercy is new every morning. Thank you for your love and your grace.
I pray, Holy Spirit, would you come now and anything that you want to say to us, would you speak to us in this time of silence? Amen.